Hi, and welcome to Into the Colaverse Office Hours, an open forum podcast that takes us deep into the minds and work of our faculty here at the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join us, your hosts, Frederick Luis Aldama and Daniel Oppenheimer, as we learn of the many issues discussed and deliberated by our cutting-edge faculty who are transforming the world today. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for you know jumping in here. I know we're all excited and interested to talk about this subject, um, literary criticism. But I think coming from all sorts of different fields, we all have, you know, probably our our individual responses to something like this Merv Emery's um, piece. Um, into the Colliverse. Well, I'm Frederick Luis Aldama. I'm in the English department. I am the founder and director of the Latinx Pop Lab on campus. I also am host of Into the Colliverse. Came up with this idea, and Dan, um, you know, with Dan's help, we've got this off the ground. Basically, I'm, you know, talking with each of you. Um, hopefully, all of you at some point in the space with us today in this sort of public square space. Um, will be on it. But yeah, just sharing our journeys, sharing your journeys, your work with a bigger, more kind of general audience. And yeah, just to kind of shout from the rooftops, all the really cool stuff that we actually are doing in the academy, Um, all the very, very things that we're doing in the academy to enrich our understanding of the world um, and how it works and what we do in this big world that we live in. So the just to summarize very briefly the article for some of some of us and I have not read Gillery's book so let me just say that I did read his original book when I was a graduate student at Stanford the one that is mentioned in the piece but I haven't read the new one. So now Merv Emery and I think I think the best way for me for us to have our discussion is actually to just take the big role, bigger general points that are made and maybe some of the things that I I might consider to be some confusions. Um, but basically the idea is that Emery building on Gillery talks about this sort of history of literary criticism and kind of taking us back to the 18th century when we had a split, say, between the impulse to inquire or to interpret and the impulse to theorize, um, and then following this through a history of basically, you know, uh, belletristic tradition, philology, rhetoric, uh, the new critics, New York intellectuals, to quote unquote, the strident culture warriors, past and present. And really, the thesis is that the kind of more specialized um, we have become, and by the way, I'm not including us in this, we, um, I'm mentioning we as as in coming from the article, more specialized, the less impact our work has become, you know, beyond the, say, ivory towers. The other part of the argument is that given the increased economic uncertainties, the cultural capital of literature per this sociology of of literary criticism that Guillory provides 
is less valuable. So economic uncertainty, cultural capital of literary criticism is less valuable. So we need to, in the words of Emery, um, take this as an opportunity to reform um, our deformed selves. So there you go. So, so let me just hand it off to Domino and and Stephen. I, I I guess to respond. Thank you for that summary. That was a that was a beautiful. I wasn't sure how you were going to pull it off, but that was a beautifully efficient um, summary of a long essay um, of an even longer book. Domino and Stephen, I guess maybe just respond to that. I mean, what do you? Is Emre and I guess by extension Guillory, are they right? Are they wrong? Is this a useful? Even if they're wrong, is it a useful way of framing? kind of where we stand, or is it a destructive one? Uh, either one of you can kind of start off. I should point out also, Stephen wrote a review of the Guillory book as well, um, that I think I linked to in the first email I sent out announcing this. But 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 Domino, let me, why don't we start with you and just kind of just thoughts, responses, you know, how do you come to this <clears throat> essay? Yeah, so first of all, thank you very much. Thank you, Frederick, for that um, overview, if you will. My name is Domino Perez. Uh, I'm the Senior Associate Chair of the Department of English, and I'm an Associate Professor of English and the Center for Mexican-American Studies. So as a first-generation college student and a first-generation PhD student, moving forward with my PhD or throughout my education to get my PhD, I didn't necessarily have any particular kind of tradition to uphold. Uh, and I certainly didn't have a literary tradition to uphold. And everything was new to me. It was all full of possibility. And so what I want to say is from my perspective, this is this is my interpretation. I'm not trying to represent anybody else's point of view. And I'm not trying to offer something that's prescriptive. In reading over the essay, I, I felt it was almost anachronistic in the sense that I don't know what time period he's talking about in terms of that this is happening in the classroom, because this is not my classroom. This is not the classroom of so many of my colleagues, not only in the department, but across the university. Uh, we all, I think what, what strengthens our department is the different kinds of engagement that we have with these texts. Some folk are just incredible theorists and and that is what they bring to the conversation other people have managed to find the intersection of teaching and scholarship and theory and that's fantastic as well and i think every time our students encounter that different position from which the instructor is coming it strengthens their overall knowledge so i just well, that's my initial reaction to it but i also want to say just very briefly two things so one, I am, I am not theory hostile. I am theory skeptical. And it's not that I don't know the theory. I think you have to know theory to be skeptical of it, <laughs> to be, uh, you have to know what it is that you don't exactly trust. But I remember once as a junior scholar being at a conference with a Mayan literature scholar and this individual was talking about the difficulty he was having placing his work in academic journals. And this Frenchman stood up and said very loudly, the problem with you people is you have no theory. And for me, there was so much privilege in that statement. Uh, there was so much privilege in that assertion. And, you know, to me, my distrust and, and sort of 
questioning of theory only deepened as to why people cling to it so much and are so worried about it. And I think that is the one thing that the piece gets right, that it is try, it is tied to stature and place. And there are people who are so anxious to defend that place. And I think that is one of the reasons that, you know, this question about what is the state of theory um, has, you know, have we ruined it? And the other thing I would say is that I made a decision very early on in the writing of my first monograph that I wasn't going to write anything in such a way that my own mother or people in my community couldn't read it because I wasn't writing for other academics. And so that in and of itself undermines the very argument that is being made that it, it's, you know, it's this erudite form that's written for other academics. Again, this doesn't represent my experience in the academy. It doesn't represent my experience in the classroom. And so I was a bit puzzled by, again, what felt like anachronisms in the piece. That's really fascinating. I, I wanted to sort of hand it over to you, Stephen, and 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 I guess in the in this maybe just with the with the attempt to connect it to what Domino was was saying, which is you in your review, you're you're pretty laudatory of Guillory's book. So at a kind of macro level, I, I think you agree that there's some there's some relationship or there's some story about not just literary criticism, but 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 the humanities, because you're coming from the history department that's true about ways that it's kind of distanced distance itself from the common reader or 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 changed in some fashion since whatever the you know whatever since the 50s or something in a way that maybe has kind of alienated it from the public in some way so i think that that you agree with that kind of macro argument i'm interested if you if there's a way you can you can do that while also kind of you know reckoning with what domino was saying that maybe there was a kind of simplification of what's happening in the academy or maybe just an anachronism that what that what was being described in this article and book was true at one point, but is no longer true, if that makes sense as a question. If you want to know why Guillory's book has gotten so much attention, the answer is simple, because it's a eulogy for a discipline that has lost its audience and has lost its way. There's a pervasive sense among many people who have degrees in the humanities that in the wake of deconstruction, postmodernism, the discursive term, uh, the core humanities disciplines are in deep trouble. And it's true. Academic criticism and serious literature have lost their audience. The discipline of English, like the discipline of history, is fractured and fragmented. We've experienced a dramatic decline in majors, 50% in our fields in the last 10 years. The PhD programs cannot place their students. Literary criticism is regarded by large segments of the educated public, excuse my phrase, as mental masturbation, performative, self-promoting, opaque, jargon-ridden. The discipline focuses more on the present than it does on its own history. And the villains, of course, not Foucault or Derrida or Spivak or Butler, it's academic hyper-specialization, professionalization, and the academization of literary criticism. Uh, worse yet is our fields, the humanities fields, are marginalized in our own university. 
They're treated increasingly as service departments and were regarded, I think, horribly mistakenly by our own colleagues as lacking rigor and that our fields are becoming cinema studies light, ethnic studies light, indigenous studies light, women's studies light. And so I take what Guillory has written very seriously. I think he's talking about issues that we really need to ponder. The humanities golden age was very brief. Uh, as soon as women had more options than they did in the 1960s and early 1970s, that's when the decline of enrollment in the humanities began to really surge and new alternatives to humanities disciplines have emerged. Asians, American studies, black studies, gender sexuality studies, Latinx studies, women's studies, but also arts, technology, and communication, environmental studies, linguistics, sustainability. We're not even controlling our own turf in the humanities any longer. And this push towards a 20th and 21st century focus is really damaging to many of our disciplines. This is inevitable, and in many ways, it's a really good thing, right? The insularity of our disciplines in the past was bad. But how are we, in a context of shrinking faculty size, going to have coverage of all relevant areas and do new things too? Again, this is what Guillory's concerned about. Let me just stop right there. Well, thank you, Stephen. I see your hand, Frederick. I, and, and I won't get in the way of what you wanted to say, but but thank you, Stephen, for sort of stating the case kind of boldly and, and, and confidently. I think that's really useful. I guess to Frederick and, and Domino, I guess my question is, I guess your response to Stephen and just another way to frame it is, you know, I think in the Emre essay and in the Guillory book, I, I assume the argument is that you know, the decline in the humanities, which I think we probably would all agree that just empirically is the case, is in some substantial part a result of actions taken by the academy, that it's a reaction to ways in which the discipline has changed. And I guess one question I have for you guys with that is, is whether you think that's true. I mean, respond to Stephen's kind of argument in general, but also like, or or is it true that the humanities have declined, but the reasons are external to the academy? They have to do with macroeconomic trends and cultural trends and broader declines in just the cultural capital of literature that have nothing to do with what's happening at the university level. So, Frederick, I mean, do you want to start and then maybe go over to Domino? Yeah, Stephen. Um, so just let me just say a couple of things here. Um, I'm more on the side, Dan, that you just presented. Okay period, which is to say that when we have, we basically have the, you know, I've, I've got students who are living in cars because they can't afford to live in Austin. I've got like students who can't, you know, barely pay the tuitions because it's gotten so crazy. We've got, you know, AP history now that's being like reshaped, you know, because of pressure from people, you know, that shouldn't even be in the room talking about what black history, you know, college board stuff should be, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't even have to look, we can look elsewhere. We can look at places like, you know, Brazil with Bolsonaro and his like luxury tax that he put on books. 
you know, and fortunately, someone like Lula da Silva's, you know, admin saying, no, we're going to support libraries, publishers in the arts, just like we hopefully are doing right now um, as things are being pulled from under us. So, yes, I see macro as the big thing. Now, to Stephen's point, there is a mis, a very deep misconception of what happens in the classroom. And this is going back to Domino's point, um, you know, the. Yes, there was a day, and I remember at Berkeley when someone like Stephen Greenblatt would walk down the hallway and he would have his entourage of graduate students opening doors and stuff, um, right? I mean, yes, we saw it. I know, you know, um, Sam Baker's in the room. I know he can talk a lot about like this kind of stuff. Avital Ronell over in Dwinell Hall, who had 5,000 people pouring out of this lecture hall. And, you know, people like, I don't know, Robert Alter over in another room teaching, you know, really kind of fun, deep culture, you know, close readings had three people, including me. Okay. So my point is though, let me let me just say something really important here. There is a fundamental confusion and conflation in this piece, I think, and I don't know if it goes into Guillory or not, around what interpretation or literary criticism is and its aims and its goals and theory. Now, yes, there was high theory. There was the stuff that Stephen just talked about with deconstruction, post-structuralism, and so on and so forth, where it became much more concerned with kind of theory, uh, a theory of theory. But there was a long and has been a very long tradition in the study of literature, and we can go back to the Russian formalists and even Aristotle way before that, that asked questions that attempted to understand on a much deeper level the, the difference, say, or how literature is built differently to, say, I don't know, art or uh, a car, et cetera, et cetera. That is to say, getting at the roots of something like literature and trying to understand what at one point was called literariness. And then a lot of people abandoned it because it just became very difficult to identify something that on a theoretical level, level could be a system, right? And then there's interpretation. And this article confuses the two. There are there's nothing, I'm not putting any value on one or the other. I'm just saying that theory and criticism are two different things and they're two different kind of animals and they have two different kinds of goals in mind. And there are ways that we're seeing theory being um, developed in this kind of convergence and emergence of knowledge today. You know, a lot of our colleagues are doing it, but we are also doing interpretation and we're doing a mixture and we're doing all sorts of this kind of stuff. So, you know, to say that somehow literary criticism, that it's the marginality or the marginality or the margins that have somehow ruined literary criticism or what we're doing in the classroom is actually inflating all sorts of things here that are not um, realistic or even representative of what the field, the richness of the field itself. And I'll leave it there. Yeah. So thank you so much, Frederick. I really appreciate what you said. And I think the distinction between um, theory and criticism is hugely important because actually you don't need theory to do literary criticism. So I appreciate that. 
Um, and I also uh, appreciate Stephen's clarification of um, what makes this piece so popular, or rather the book so popular, the idea of um, that it represents a kind of eulogy for the discipline. And that I think is, I think that's absolutely correct, which leads me to say, but it's also eulogizing a very exclusionary system. And I don't think that there's anything additional that I could add to what Fred said, but I do want to say that rigor and accessibility and disciplinary expansion are not mutually exclusive. I think to have good literary criticism, to effectively convey or engage, rather not convey, rather to effectively engage with the text, you need all of those things. And, you know, I think that one of the things that I do find is that there is this tendency, I believe, to the other part of the question that, that you asked, Dan, um, why has interest in, in English and, and history and the humanities in general fallen off? I, I, I think that there is an anti-intellectualism that pervades our current <laughs> cultural moment, and it's been that for a while now. But, you know, the, the, the question that I think has poisoned the well of the humanities is, you know, what are you going to do with it? And the, the, um, the sort of reference to, you know, oh, I have a history degree and, you know, that's qualified me to be a barista, right? Uh, and I think it, those kind of conversations, I think, talk about, they, they, they bring to mind these ideas of like class struggle and, you know, elitism and, you know, where we place cultural value on certain forms of thought and certain forms of expression. I think that anymore, it is about this worry, this genuine worry and preoccupation that, you know, what am I going to do with a with a humanities degree? Yeah, and that's that's a real question that people have to ask themselves and not one to be dismissive of, even if the result is that they major in something we wish they when we wish they would major in the humanities. I guess because I want to get to the question soon. Let me ask my 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 last sort of official question, which I told you guys I was going to be asking, which is which is um, if you were emperor of the discipline of English or the discipline of history in Stephen's case in the United States, and you had the power to sort of single-handedly restructure the entire edifice of teaching tenure, promotion, and scholarship, you know, what would you do? What Or, or what are a few things you would do? Because I assume however each of you responded to this article and its particular critique of the discipline, there's no reason to assume that where we are at the moment is precisely where we should be or where you would want us to be. So, so what's your disciplinary utopia? Uh, or at least some elements of it. And and maybe, um, Frederick, I'll start with you and then go to Domino and, and Stephen. Well, for us to get to that utopia, we need to have certain things in place, which are the things that we were just defending um, on a really basic level. So one, you know, um, higher education shouldn't, shouldn't become a burden to our students after they graduate, right? Um, that is to say that when they enter, they come through the front door, there should be the sense that this is a place where they can explore to realize all of their potentialities, right? Um, without this sort of pressure that Domino made so clear and that we all know by, you know, spending time with our students. 
um, the, that is to say the, the financial pressures, the burdens. So that's one thing. I mean, these are all macro things. So we need to take care of some really basic kind of macro level stuff before we can get to that utopia is what I'm trying to, I guess, say. The other thing that I want to say is that um, we need to, I'll be, I'll just be honest, we need to be better at getting our message out. I, I go to these PTO meetings and it's really easy for people to get a simple message that's in reaction to something, right? I hate this is really easy. I like this is, is harder. Okay, so, and I like this, especially coming from us, all of us in this room, is I like this because it leads me to ask questions. It leads me to ask questions that hopefully will with others generate new knowledge about this thing that I'm interested or asking questions about that's in the world and how this thing in the world exists and by in its existence transforms who we are and what we do in this world. Now that getting our message across about that is much harder. So we need to simplify that message. You know, Stephen was really excellent at articulating the mainstream misunderstanding of what it is we're doing and what it is that we have in mind and what we actually accomplish with our students, right? And that is to create a, a kind of sanctity of learning space that allows for us to ask questions, other questions that may have not have been asked to provide the tools for enriching our understanding and clarification in the general goal of the what we might call the convergence and emergence of new knowledge, knowing that this is baby steps and that it is also a knowledge that is continually kind of retroactively revising itself, period. Domino? Your disciplinary utopia, emperor of English in all the United well, States. I'm not an empress. I don't work in a utopia and the academy will never be a utopia. That being said, I'd much rather say what I would like to see happen in, the, in that context of knowing that it's not a utopia. And it's really very simple. I would like to continue to do what I do for as long as I can do it without state interference. Stephen, member of history. You mentioned the tension between the macro forces and the micro forces, but the fact is we only control the micro forces. And so here's four steps that we should take. Number one, we need to become much more cross-disciplinary. We need to hire people who connect to the various fields that our students are most interested in. Those are not all in the sciences, but if we can't connect ourselves to those, we're gonna be increasingly marginal on our own campus. Second, the area where we have by far the most control is gen ed. And we should, I think, get away from disciplinary-based, narrow introductory courses and think much more about the interdisciplinary issues humanistic issues that our students are really concerned about. 
These issues have to do with identity. They have to do with power. They have to do with equity. They have to do with freedom. They also have to do with existential issues like grief and loss and the like. Third, we're responsible for the most important skills, and I don't see it. Fewer than half of our students at our campus take freshman composition at UT, and it shows in their writing. And we should not dismiss this. We have a genuine responsibility to improve our students' writing. And when I'm teaching 800 students, come on, those students aren't getting the feedback that they need to improve their writing. Fourth, next, we really have to emphasize what's called the paraliterary, or I would call the parahistory. That is, there is a lively interest in what we do in the real world, and we're not well connected to that world. We are, to a certain extent, entrenched in the ivory tower. I well remember times when Lionel Trilling or Harold Bloom or Edward Said spoke to a public audience, and I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a single literary critic, and not very many historians either, who can right now truly connect to a broad educated audience. That's on us. That's not just a matter of macro forces. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Let me open it up. Those are all great. Let me open it up to the audience. If you're interested in saying something, um, please kind of raise your hand in the, I think it's in the reactions. Uh, is that right? In the reactions thing at the bottom. And I will call on you. Uh, oh, Nina. I see Nina Gatt. Do you want to unmute and ask? Uh, yes, thank you. And thank you for sending me the invite. It was kind of very recent. So I did not have an opportunity to look into the essay or the um, book, but I'm very interested in these conversations and these issues because I face it uh, not only in my uh, research, my writing, but also in my life in a very big way and, uh, and now have strong opinions about it. <laughs> so I think I want to uh, uh, just to keep it short and everybody's here uh, to participate. So I'm just gonna make one comment and I wanna start with um, the presentation from uh, Domino Perez. I, I, I really, really see the point of what uh, Perez uh, is uh, going toward, which is, uh, as you mentioned in your example, you would, uh, when you write something and your research, it must speak to your community. It must be understood by your mother. So, but I feel that, and here I'm wanting to shift to the position that others have taken, Stephen and Frederick uh, Adama also, because it is not accepted yet widely that that perspective that you want to have in talking to your mother in your research and have it be respected as major groundbreaking research, why it is so? And I think that can only be explained by getting into the trenches of what theory is, what where it is coming from, 
where are we in this moment and where are we going and where do we want to go? I think that's a very important question. And, and this whole conversation is about we're in a bizarre moment. People are uh, losing interest in theory, losing interest in uh, quality, losing interest in uh, raising the bar. I think those are the points that have been made, and I completely, completely understand. But how do we get there? I, I think we have to have the conversation about uh, where are we wanting to go in this sort of a broken moment when we're dealing with a lot of disruption and uh, new ideas and a lot of uh, marginalized previously marginalized voices wanting to be at the center table and be a part of this conversation on how we get theory to respond to research and literature being put in, put out. So I think I want to take what Perez said to a, a different place. So here, I think I slightly disagree that it's enough to just do that. Uh, to, to speak to my mother and to speak to my community. I think we need to do more than that. I need to show why speaking to my mother and my community is extremely important under a, a legitimate and more universal theoretical perspective, which we all must be a part of and be allowed to, to, uh, to have on the table. So that's kind of what is uh, uh, yeah. my sense of um, where we need to go. So I think I'll just end there and maybe there will be more down the road if I've made myself understood so far. That's that's good. Thank you. Thank you, Nina. And I was going to say, I forgot to remind you, I'm just, I, I Googled you. You're a, you're a doctoral student in, in the Department of Asian Studies. And I was going to, so Adela, why don't, can you unmute and, and talk and just introduce right. yourself for-, for Dan, can I- to, I'm sorry. Can I, yeah. can I have an opportunity to respond yeah, to Nina? Nina, I, I absolutely agree with everything that you said. The, what what I do in my work and the decision that I made is not exclusive of that, right? Of identifying why it's important, right? Uh, to expand or expand my work in the way that I that I that I have, and to talk about how my work was constructed. Um, and that is very much a part of my most recent book that talks not only about the work that we do, but how research is made, what gets valued in that process, what are the epistemic forms that are elevated and what are ones that are sort of erased and sort of bringing all of that into conversation. So I absolutely agree with you. And the other thing I will say is that the moment was this idea of writing for a particular or particular audiences. I think one of the things that I want to say about Professor Aldama's work, and I, he's too humble, I think, to, to bring it up himself, but what a, one of the things that I find so important about what he does in the Latinx Pop Lab is that he takes some of so much of the work that we do and brings it to a wider audience. He brings it to you know, non-academic specialists. He brings it to the Twitterverse. He brings it to social media. He engages people with the kinds of conversations that we're having, and people get excited about that. 
And so to me, the work that Professor Aldama is doing is exactly the kind of work that Stephen called for, right? It's already in existence. Some of us have already been doing it and some of us will continue to do it. But I just wanted to point out, Nina, that I agree with you. It's But given the time constraints, I didn't have the time. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't want to take up too much time explaining. So thank you. Thanks, Domino. Adela? Yes. Um, hi, everybody. I am Adela Pineda. I am a professor of Spanish literature, Latin American literature, and I'm the director of LILAS uh, currently. And thank you for the invitation. I did read the article um, uh, a week ago or so, and I actually was commenting it with my husband. Um, and I I, I want to just comment on, from a historical perspective, right? Like, I think the article is also very focused on the idea of modern literature. Um, the moment when literature in the West came a specialized discourse of inquiry from an aesthetic point of view and where we could ask what the literariness was, right? That literature has existed well beyond the 19th century, but in the moment when critics and writers came together to ask the questions of like, what differentiates literary language from all, all other type of writings was this also a social phenomenon. It had to do with the division of labor in the West and in also in other countries, meaning what is the writer for? What is the writer going to achieve? And why is it that civic writing is not the same as literature, right? And I think this was the beginning of the highly specialized language of criticism and then theory, meta language about what literature in itself is and what is criticism in itself that permeated the the 20th century and created the institution of literary studies within universities. I think there was also in that institution, the possibility of a job market. Students could go and find a job and we could like train them easily. Now, I think what I think is very interesting in the article, it is true, is the precarization of the profession when our PhD students go and try to find a job. And, there is, and this is why we now subsume literature to a wider domain, you know, interdisciplinary in nature, which is healthy, you know, through cultural studies, etc. But that doesn't mean that the humanities are at risk because we are actually making them ancillary to the problem of society that has to do with this hyper-specialized uh, tendency toward knowledge becoming it more technical. Like it is more about skills than about knowledge in general. That's like, that's the pace. And we are like faster learners, etc. The other thing I want to say that even though we are more inclusive and we try to be inclusive, the university as an institution in itself is not inclusive only because it's so expensive. And if we would like to actually make literature or any humanities discipline more democratic, this problem needs to be addressed. Even though we would like to reach out to more people, what is the per percentage of students who can actually have access to the university? That's an, a broader question. Finally, the role of the writer as a public intellectual that Professor Mintz was talking about. I think this is also a question of the change of the status of writers and public intellectuals. I think with new social media, the idea of the public intellectual is not the one we had in the 20th century, where you could use the, the symbolic capital of 
your knowledge of literature or or whatever field it was to speak up um, in politics, in society, right? We now have community of writers through social media, networking, et cetera. So I think all these factors should be taken into consideration to assess the future of the study of literature within the university setting. Yeah, that was a pretty, thank you, Adele. That was a pretty kind of brilliant kind of synthesis of a lot of these, uh, the sort of macro currents and and, and the sort of creation of the discipline and, and maybe a sort of brief period when it was, when it had a kind of coherence in response to maybe its size and also what was going on culturally. Um, Patrick, do you want to uh, ask your question? Actually, Frederick, why don't you, uh, it looks like you have your hand up. Do you want to respond? And then, and then when we can, Patrick, we'll get to you. So I think what we need to also keep clearly in mind in this piece, and I don't know if this is generated from the gallery or not, but there is the, yet again a conflation between this idea of more specialized, less impact. That is, the more specialized is also linked in this piece to those who use theory as political surrogacy and that have single-handedly ruined the academy. There is a danger in this conflation, not only in the piece, but in the world and in our engagement with the world at large. And this is why. It gets it wrong, but it feeds a machine that is already operating on misrepresenting what we're doing. That feeds a machine that undermines the funding that we so desperately need, not just in the academy, but in the NEH, in all the academies that support our poets, in our classrooms, in our libraries, our local libraries, our K-12 libraries, our adjuncting, gigging you know, of the profession, our hiking of tuitions. It feeds that machine. So we need to be careful. We need to understand what is being said and what is being dangerously conflated and how this yet again is pitting intellectuals, if you will, people who are, you know, let's say spend their time, their professions doing and thinking and creating in these spaces against one another. And I just think that we need to put the brakes on. This is something that I wrote about. I'll just pull it up here. Way back in what 2008, people have been writing about this, you know, now for like several decades. What we really need to do is actually put the brakes on, ask for clarification, and then get on the same side of the table, even if we are all coming from different places. Because if we don't, it becomes artillery, it becomes the kind of the, the 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 gasoline, if you will, that powers a machine that is going to send us into a kind of oblivious oblivion of totalitarianism, period. So I'm going to go to Patrick, but I want to just sort of stop for a second because that there's a word you use right at the end there, Frederick, sort of clarification, and you put a lot of emphasis on it. And I feel like that's, I think I know what you're talking about, uh, like that we need clarification. And, and I want to kind of push you and Stephen and Domino um, on what whether they agree with that and what that would look like. But Patrick, you've had your hand up for a while. Do you want to say something or ask a question? Yeah, uh, I, have, I have two brief questions for- Oh, and introduce uh, yourself and kind oh, of your affiliation. 
Sorry, my bad. Um, I am Patrick. I am a dual master student in English and information. And uh, my first question is uh, about social media. Um, so, like it or not, right? My generation is more or less hooked onto it. And um, but on the good side, right? We have young people who are very attuned to uh, narratives and narratorizing their own lives, right? Somehow, we are not harnessing this attunement that is kind of digitized, right? Uh, so what do you all think about, you know, like ways in which we can, you know, uh, move uh, in, you know, like uh, to not fight against the trend, but to see what we can harness from it, right? Uh, for instance, does that mean a closer collaboration between the criticism side of the department and the creative writing side of the department, which doesn't exist that much, right? Um, and the second question uh, has to do with, uh, something uh, Steven said earlier about, you know, uh, the most valuable thing we're able to teach uh, is writing, right, and writing skills. Um, that seems to be like uh, something that we all kind of believe in to a different extent, right? I was a huge believer of this um, until I took a research job in science. Uh, and uh, then I realized that, first of all, the, the problem here is that we've been treating writing skills as a monolith, right? That what we are able to offer and teach Will directly transfer over to let's say uh uh like a like a like a scientist writing uh, uh like a grant right uh turns out it's not that way at all it's an entirely different skill set right uh in fact what I was able to bring into that job some of it I have to unlearn right to uh to be effectively able to operate on it and the other thing is um scientists uh and you know like uh especially scientists like also business people as well uh are a lot less skeptical to what things like chat gpt could do for them right so um regardless of what it would actually do or not right they they are a lot it's, it's easier for them to believe that it could replace what we could offer right so in other words i I'm suspicious that this wouldn't be a very sustainable narrative for the future, right? Uh, because again, this is kind of like going against the, the tide, right? Uh, like um, on some level, we can try our best to instill a sense of suspicion, right? For our students against, you know, just relying on AI, right? But uh, at the same at the same time, we should also try to, you know, like consider ways of how, how do we teach alongside of it, right? Because, uh, uh, otherwise, like this notion that we monopolize, you know, writing pedagogy will go obsolete very soon uh, with, you know, constantly evolving technologies. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. I think that actually does lead in in a kind of natural way to the question I was going to ask of the panelists. And, and I want to go back to Frederick used that word clarification. And I guess what I heard, and you can you can correct me if this isn't what you meant, was we we as a discipline as kind of humanists we need to to get on the same page or have clarity about what we're doing kind of why we're here what we're trying to do as teachers what we're trying to do as scholars and and i think patrick what you were saying about kind of it's not a sustainable narrative if i think of this way if we try to sell ourselves as sort of kind of uh instructors and in skills that are applicable across disciplines or something you know if that's not in fact true but but i guess the question i'd put to you guys and, and let me start with you frederick and then and then Stephen and Domino, like, what are we trying to do? Is that an important question to answer or is, in fact, not an important question to answer or an impossible one to, to answer because we are not all on the same page and it's kind of utopian um, to imagine that we could be. But but Frederick, let me let me start with you because you were the one who kind of used the word that that pointed me in this direction. 
Okay. Yeah. Thanks. I'll just be really brief. Uh, yeah. Thanks, Patrick, as well. Um, let me just say really quickly, there is an assumption and there has been an assumption kind of in the water that the university and then the kind of greater society itself has had that somehow liberal arts education, and there's reason for this. If we go back to like late 19 teens and the great war and our involvement in Europe and so on, that liberal arts and its function was to create functionaries. Mm. And that has some, that has been some, it's a legacy that has been hard to shake and that continues to be part of the discourse that Patrick is actually replicating or criticizing or being critically replicative of that Stephen mentions in the big lectures in the kind of bread and butter, you know, writing courses and so on. And that Patrick in a very elegant and very gentle way is saying, actually, we need to kind of reconsider that. But even more deeply, is that all we do? Are we creating, are we, are we 1917 creating our object, the object of the aim of our kind of Western civilization course in 1917 to create mandarins, to create functionaries that will be placed abroad, et cetera, et cetera. We can say the same thing of the kind of mandarizing, mandarinizing of Latin America during the 60s, et cetera. Chomsky talks about it, et cetera. I, no. And so fundamentally, we need to change that narrative. Do we need Period. to, let me, just, let me push you, which is, so granting that, do we need, do we, I guess, speaking as a kind of collective profession or, or college or, or humanists, so if that's not the answer, do you feel like we need to come up with an answer? And do we need to get on the same page? We absolutely do need to come up with an answer. Um, and we do need to be on the same page. And it's because precisely if we don't, it's going to continue to be the divide and conquer. And before you know it, we won't have anything tomorrow. Um, and that that same message may be that we all bring different things to the table, but we have an end goal in mind in general for the students that come through COLA. So, Stephen, let me let me put the same question to you. Do you, do we all need to be on the same page and 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 then sort of take it one step further? Kind of what page does if the answer is yes, what page does that need to be from your perspective? Daniel Mendelssohn, the great classicist who really can speak to a public audience, said this about the humanities. When your father dies, an accounting degree will not help you process that event. What we need to do, it seems to me, is not be a repetition of high school, but to really engage with our students on the issues that concern them. For example, students today are really interested in the history of race. That would require, you know, moving from the classical era to the contemporary era. Do we offer that? Not really. They're really interested in issues of equity. How do we address that? They're really interested in issues of power, not just power that's exerted economically, or militarily or diplomatically, but power that's exercised through discourse, power that's exercised through language. 
I think that the time has come for us to radically rethink the kind of courses that we offer that speak more directly to the concerns of our students in the humanities. And that way we can demonstrate that the humanities have great value, not vocational value, but in being a human being. Guillory's book ends with a plea to bring humanities back to its earlier root, which is the art of living. I say, right on. So, Domino, let's let's end with you. And I guess I'll just ask the question to you, like, do we need to be on the same page? If so, is it something like the page that uh, Stephen just articulated? And if not, um, why not? I was thinking about what both Fred and Stephen said, and I think that on the one hand, I agree with what Fred is saying about we need to think about what it is that, like, what is our objective? What are we trying to convey? Um, and I think what needs to happen that can be really productive is that departments need to ask the questions that we are asking each other. Right. We need to have these conversations and our students need to be present and, and, and witness those conversations so they can understand right, what these difficult conversations can look like, the shape that they can take right, and how they can be generative. In other words, this is a real opportunity to model like how can we move forward, right? how we, how we can move the discipline forward. In terms of the quote that that Stephen offered about you know account an accountant not being able to an accounting degree not being able to help someone process grief. I was thinking about how many programs that the university establishes and has for people who have degrees in, in things other than the humanities, but they can pay to come back and get humanities degrees at the highest level. So they have things to talk about so they can connect with other human beings in the world, right? And I think that that connection, that connection is so hugely important. Um, and I, I, I think about, I can't remember what it is, but there's the competition that the students had the students have every year where it's somebody from, they pick three different disciplines and they have to argue, the professors from each of the disciplines have to argue, like there's been an apocalypse, what do you need to rebuild the world? And, you know, the engineer will say, well, you need basic tools and you need, and, you know, the artist will say something else. And then the literature person has said something else. And I think about the fact that somebody from the humanities has actually never won that. Mm. And it, to me, that says something about the value that people place on it and they don't see the generative possibilities of, of literature. And I think that looking at those generative possibilities to me that's where we need to get on the same page because it can do what Stephen said. It can do exactly what Frederick says. And I just think that we need to model those difficult dialogues for our students and we need to have them for ourselves or 
deal with the consequences of not having them at all. Frederick, do you want to close us out as the as the host of this uh, conversation slash podcast? Just say that this is a model, uh, the precise model that Domino is talking about. And, you know, it's good to have tough conversations. It's even good for us to get a little bit kind of have our feathers ruffled. Um, but in the end, I think it's it's really, really if we do not do this, as Domino had just said, tomorrow we will not have the space to do this. We will not have the kind of sanctity of learning spaces that you know we have today. And you know, fundamentally, we will suffer. Um, and society and civilization will 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 um, suffer the consequences. So, and by the way, I will say this: it's not just what we do in the classroom; it's also what we do out in the classroom of the classroom, and it does require us boots on the street, stomping and standing in solidarity with all of those who are fighting to protect the freedom of learning of intellectual exchange and of knowledge generation. And if we don't do that, then we will be in a sore place tomorrow. Thank you. And 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 thank you for sort of ending on a note of urgency, which I think is is kind of the reason why you and I thought it was worth it to do this in a sort of do this at all, but do it in a collaborative sort of discussion sense. So thank you, Frederick. Thank you, Domino. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you to all of you who participated. Uh, we'll take this, we'll edit it in, we'll we'll disseminate it as a podcast, and hopefully we'll do more of these in the future. Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.